Our Father and our God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather at a time like this every Saturday to study your word. Thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for all we've learned so far. Thank you for all that was set to cover today. I pray for clarity. I pray for truth. And I pray that all would learn would be able to apply to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, going straight right into it, where we stopped at Philippians, um, Philippians 25, a very popular verse, especially if you go to um, Celebration Church. But before then, just to backtrack to some of the things we covered in the book of Philippians last week, of course, written by Paul to the people of Philippi. And we went to the book of Acts to see how the story all started. And what we see is, this is Paul, missionary, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, the world for Jesus. And he's going to, he goes to this first city, or he tries to go. And the Holy Ghost is like, no, not yet. He goes to, he tries to go to another city. And the Holy Spirit is like, no, this is still not it. And then, while in that position, he had a dream. And he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us, come and help us. And then... In the words of Paul, we judge that the Holy Spirit was sending us to Macedonia, of which Philipp, um, Philippi is one of the major cities there, along with Thessalonica and Berea and the rest. And so we see Paul led by the Spirit of God to the city of Philippi. And before I even go any further, I, I just want us, I, I, I want to point out um, this about the leading of God, that this is not an excuse for lack of evangelizing or evangelism or an excuse for lack of giving. I say, oh, the Holy Spirit has not led me to evangelize to this person, or the Holy Spirit hasn't led me to give, or to do this or to do that. No. If you see the natural disposition of Paul, he was always ready to preach. He was always ready to, to go out and, and actually preach the message. Then is the Holy Spirit directing that zeal and saying, all right, maybe not, maybe not here right maybe not now maybe not this place so there should be that same desire that desire that oh i want to preach oh i want to share the message of the gospel oh i want to give right i want to give to people um i want to i want to be a part of what god is doing and maybe the lord anyways um where was i yes there was already a desire to step out in the will of god and we see the Spirit of God directing that desire. So this is not an excuse to say, oh, why don't you evangelize? You know, I've not been led to this person. I've not been, no, 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 no. There should be that natural disposition that, yes, I want to share the gospel with, all, um, with everyone who is ready to listen. And then maybe God says, okay, maybe not now. Maybe do it this way or go here or whatever. I, I hope that's clear. The second thing that we highlighted last week looking through the story of Paul is that even though he was led by the Spirit of God, shortly after he had ministered in Philippi, he meets this lady who is constantly harassing him and Barnabas, and then he casts out the demon, and he ends up in prison. So him and Silas, and he ends up in prison. And I said this last week, and I will say it again, that in the leading of God, it is first of all built on conviction, not external response. It is, Paul could have easily said, what am I doing in prison? Didn't the Lord say, 
maybe you know maybe i was i was i was thinking things maybe i saw things maybe i didn't really hear maybe i should have gone to um bithynia instead am i sure the lord but no none of that because there was already conviction that the lord sent me here so regardless of the fact that he ended up in prison it did not change his conviction in what god had asked him to do and that is important because every single one of us as believers in following the leading of the spirit of god there will be times where the external response may not correspond with the things that you have received or you feel that you were led to do and at those time it is in very important that just like paul you hold on to the conviction that you received when god spoke you hold on to the conviction that you received when you were led and you don't start to because of the responses ah maybe god didn't send me here after all maybe i was the one that worked it no 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 don't give in to to that kind of thinking and that's why before you act build conviction is this really the voice of the lord is the lord actually leading me leading me this way if he is let that conviction carry you through regardless of the responses because anything can happen in the in, in the in the physical that might try to be like oh maybe every pastor everyone who has tried to start a work knows this feeling of where you are starting out and sometimes things are not and you're like am i sure god called me to do <laughs> maybe i should have just stayed at my job but no you keep that conviction you keep that conviction and at, at the end of the day we see how god used that opportunity in prison to not only work a notable miracle but to lead to the salvation of the prison guard and all his household and all his household to so stay there if the lord has led you to do something to go somewhere to undertake a task and you have built conviction let that conviction keep you in that task so that even in the moments where things look contrary or things are getting difficult it is that same conviction that would carry you through Amen. And so now we see Paul in prison writing to this church who also is going through persecution and harassment from their Roman neighbors and all of that and we can really see the heart of Paul. The book of Philippians I love it so much because it's so personal. You can tell how much Paul loves these people. You can see his heart and you can see the things he emphasizes as opposed to the Galatians where they were clear doctrinal issues of maybe the Corinthians which is full of one issue after the other of course there are issues Paul is going to address in the Philippian church but generally it's 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 a broader letter full of love and and um and what's the word i don't know uh he's commending them he's encouraging yes encouragement full of encouragement and there's a lot we can learn from that as well so let's get right into it um Philippians 1:25 that's where we stopped And so we just from the um, previous verses we see Paul saying that I I don't know on one hand I want to die <laughs> or rather no I want to die let me I take that back if I die it is to my advantage why because I'm going to be with Christ so personally that's not such a bad idea right I love the Lord if I die I'm just going to be with him but on the other hand If I stay alive verse 24 it is more needful for you. And so we see that even though for Paul dying was the preferable option, but even in that situation he still chose 
to place the needs of others above himself. Think about that for a moment. For Paul, living was the selfless choice that he had to make because of other people. I like what what kind of what kind of man is this? And think about that. That for him to be considered, for him to place others above himself, which is going to go on to emphasize in chapter 2 today, as we're going to see in the attitude of Christ and how we mirror that same attitude to the church. But that is, this is Paul leaving out that instruction, that in placing others above himself, what does it look like? Choosing to live and not die. He says, it will be needful for you. I'll be able to plant more, more communities for the gospel. I'll be able to disciple more people. And so for that reason, it is better that I live. It is better that I live. And what does he go on to say? He says, being confident of this. So now we are starting into today's teaching proper. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. Those of you that attend Celebration Church can probably quote that verse even in the middle of your sleep. Uh, <laughs> I know that I would remain and continue. So Paul, after the dilemma he has faced, should I die? Uh, sorry, do I, do I want to die? Do I, do I not want to die? He's like, you know what? For your sakes, and that's the emphasis there, for your sakes. As a believer, how many times do you find yourself asking, what would be most beneficial for my brother? What would be most beneficial for my sister? What would, what would be to their advantage? You're about to take a decision and it's not just about you anymore. How will it affect my church? How will it affect my contribution to those around me? That is how to think like a believer. For your sakes, what is most needful for the brethren? In Paul's sake, it was to stay alive. It was to stay alive. So think about that. Remember, we started, we've, we've talked a lot about Christian unity all through last week. So in case you haven't listened to that, um, please find time to, to put all of that in, 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 um, in context. But then he says, I know I will too. After this dilemma, what is my disposition? I would stay. Why? For your progress and joy of faith. So now, of course, like we've talked about, whenever you see the word faith, in, especially in the epistles, many times it refers to the body of teaching that constitutes what it means to be a Christian. So you see Jude saying, I wrote to you, I'm writing to you to earnestly contend for the faith that has once and for all been handed down. That is talking about a specific set of teachings about who Jesus is, about what he has done, about how we should respond. That body of teaching is referred to as the faith. But there's also um, a more enlarged scope of this same word where it talks about the actual sum total of your Christian experience, meaning the knowledge and how you live it out in your day-to-day life. So you'd see things like keep the faith, right? Your faith walk. That is your entire, your, 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 your understanding of the gospel and how it impacts your day-to-day life. And Paul is saying, I would stay with you for your progress and joy of faith. This thing you have come to believe, right? I would stay with you so that you would experience progress. In, the, in, in verses earlier, in Philippians 1, um, verse 9, we see Paul characterize love 
by knowledge that I hope, I pray that your love would abound in knowledge. Now we see him characterize faith by progress. It is possible to mark progress in your faith walk. You can say, oh, last year, this is what I thought about God. This year, I know better. Last year, I found it hard to forgive. This year, I'm better in love. Last year, if you did this to me, <laughs> you are in trouble. I will find you. This year, I can let it slide. You are experiencing progress in your faith. But he doesn't just stop there. He says that that faith is not just marked by progress. It's also marked by joy. And in my Bible, I highlighted those two words because they are so important. Growing as a believer, it's not just, oh, um, ah, I'm on a diet. You know, I, I really want to do something else, but I just have to stick to this routine. Oh, I'm going to the gym. I hate it so much, but I just have to. No. Growth in the Lord. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you get to know what he has done, who you are as a result, it will be marked by joy. And that's why you'd see someone, at, let's say someone in his 60s, and he's been saved for 30 years. And you can, you can just see that peace and joy that just marks their love work. I remember growing up and there were some older people in our church and you just look at them and like, nothing in this life bothers them anymore. I mean, they don't really have much to live for anyways because they're, they're, they're closer to eternity than this, this side of the earth. But you can just tell that because of the time they've spent in the Lord, it has been marked by joy. It has been marked by joy. Don't forget these are people going through persecution. And he's saying that me continuing with you will lead to progress and joy. So it goes to tell you that the joy of faith is not necessarily something that has to do with how things are working out. Because for the Philippian church, things weren't exactly working out. Right? It is much more. It is the same thing we looked at in 1 Peter. The more you get to know the joy of the gospel, the more you get to know the hope that awaits you, the more you get to know about how even in, in, in this reality, you are more than conqueror. It comes with joy. There is that joy that comes from knowing the Lord more. There is that joy that comes from being more and more united with your brethren. There is that joy that comes from being more and more eternally minded. That you know that regardless of what you face in this world, God has placed, God has prepared something much greater for you. And that is the mindset of Paul. That yes, personally I want to die or I, I wouldn't mind dying. It will be the better option for me personally, but for you, for you. Amen. So um, I, I, I want, let this be something you, you think about. Is my faith characterized by progress? Is it also characterized by joy? Am I just attending Bible studies and just gathering information one after the other, but I'm not seeing that joy. I'm not seeing that fruit. I'm not seeing that, that, that life that it's supposed to give me where I wake up every morning and I'm more, more and more aware of the love of God because that's where joy comes from. Amen. Let's go on, verse 26. So now I'm slowly covering everything I've covered in the <laughs> one hour ago. We thank the Lord for that. Verse 26, it says that you're rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Very clear that if I'm able to come, you will be happy, right? You would rejoice. 
It says in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in the Spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pick this apart a bit. First of all, the word conduct, I love that word, is the word politiomai in the Greek. And it, it, it literally just means how you behave as a citizen. That's where we get all politics, politio, citizenship, and all of that. And that is the word Paul uses to describe the conduct of the believer. In Philippians 3.20, we're going to see him take the same word again, and he would let them know that your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. So yes, you might be in Philippi. Yes, right now you might be in the US. It says, but let your conduct, let your your, your lifestyle as a citizen be one that is worthy of the gospel. You realize that you belong to another nation. You belong to another kingdom. You serve another king. So let the way you live your everyday life reflect that truth. That's why he uses that word. Politiomai. Let your behavior be, be one that reflects the fact that yes, you have believed the gospel. And he says that whether I come and see you, I'm absent, right? Whenever I hear that you are standing fast in what? One spirit, one mind. Standing together. He uses that word again for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Again, talking about the, the revelation of the entire Christian message. And we, we see the words that Paul uses here. One spirit, one mind, striving together, so much emphasis on unity. I was listening to um, one of my favorite teachers some, a couple days ago, um, Mike Winger, and he was, he was talking about the fact that in the epistles, when you see the word that was used to describe unity, many times it's the word body. It's not even the word family. You might think, oh, family, family, we all love ourselves, we are one. But many times Paul chooses to use, or even the apostles use a, a stronger word than that. They use the word the body. You are part of the body of Christ. And when you think about the unity that exists within a human body, it is mind-blowing. Just to be able to walk, your muscles, your bones, your nerves, the brain sends information, and everything works in alignment just to take that one step. And then you take another step. And every part of the body required to make that step happen works in total unity. And that is the expectation that God has for his church. That we will be one body. One body where every part is working together for a collective purpose. Every part united together in what they believe. That's why I say striving together for the faith. And so this makes it clear that this is not about, oh, you believe Jesus is God. You don't believe he died and rose again. It doesn't matter. We're all one body in Christ. Let's sing together. No. If, of course, we differ in the essentials, where, it's, where it concerns who God is, what he has done, then fellowship might not be possible. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to get there. But if it's not about an essential, if it's not about who Jesus is and what he has done, that brother in Christ is part of the same body you are part of. And there is an obligation that as believers, especially in a local assembly, 
there is unity. Unity. When you read, if you remember, for those of you that were here last year when we started, one of the first things, or in the very first episode, one of the things I said that reading through the epistles does, verse by verse, as opposed to a topical um, treatment of the Bible, which is also not bad, that is that also has its own place, is that you get to see emphasis. When you read Philippians, you read Ephesians, you read Galatians, you read Colossians, and you're starting to see the things that Paul keeps highlighting in every epistle, then you're able to know what, what was most important in his heart. So it's not just enough to know what the apostles teach. God forbid. It's not enough to know what the apostles taught. You also should pay attention to the emphasis. To what degree was it taught? They definitely emphasized some things more than others. Unity in the body was one of the biggest emphasis of the early church. It should be for us today. In fact, the very letters we're reading were written to groups of people. So yes, there's a lot to learn from personally, but always remember that the best application of this would be in your context in a body, whether that's your local church or most specifically your local church and by extension, the body of Christ. That as believers, we are one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes on in verse 28, and that you are not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and of that from God. Still talking to the body, still talking to these group of people that are going through persecution, right? And he's encouraging them that number one, be of one mind. Be of one heart. Strive together for the integrity of the message. But not only that, in the face of persecution, don't be afraid. Of course, this is not just him telling them in their own flesh, ah, just, just chest it. When they flog you, just say, it, it didn't pain me. Or they <laughs> is that all you got? No, that's not what he's saying. Of course, this is, this is a certain boldness that is made available by the Spirit. We see that in Acts 4. They told the, the apostles, don't preach in the name of Jesus or else you're going to see crazy. <laughs> and they went back and they prayed. And it says they were filled with boldness and they taught. So this is not some, some um, motivational speech uh, that when you are faced with adversaries, don't be afraid. There's No, no. This is encouraging them in the power of the Spirit. And like I always say, every instruction we see to the believer the ability to get it done is already made available. So when Paul says pray without ceasing, the ability to pray without ceasing has been deposited in the Spirit. When Paul says love unconditionally, the ability to do so has been made available. So he's not telling you things you cannot do. And so when he's telling the church that don't be terrified by adversaries, he's not telling them something they cannot do. Yes, they can't do it in their own effort, but there's the power of the Spirit at work in them. And in unity, we see that like never before. And it's amazing. Like I said last week, I'm still reading the book, um, God's Generals, the Martyrs. And you just see the boldness that believers just get, in, especially at the point of death. It's incredible. You see Stephen face to face with the Son and he's going to be killed if he says anything wrong. 
and he doesn't chicken out. He bold. If you read the speech that Stephen gave them, yourself, you'll be scared. Imagine someone is about to preach and you are telling you stiff-necked people, your fathers re- rejected the Holy and you are doing the same thing. With the people that can easily place a death sentence. Boldness. Boldness. He says, I see the Lord, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the Father. And then they stoned him. And even as he was dying, he says, Father, don't hold this against them. Boldness. Boldness. There are many more stories. How believers, even at the point of death, the boldness to face adversity. Peter and John, they raised the lame man. They were flogged. They said, don't preach again. Since they went home rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer for Christ. And like, are these people okay? What is going on? That's the same attitude Paul is telling. He says, don't be terrified. But then he he says, it is to them a proof. It is to them a proof that when they see your confidence or your boldness, even in the face of death, it says it is a of, of opposition rather. It's not always death. It says it's a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. So we see that it has a twofold meaning to both the believer and to the one who is oppressing the believer. To the one who oppresses, it is like, ah, I'm in trouble because these guys, what they believe, there's something to it. And then for you, it is a confidence that indeed your king is coming and you will be saved. Amen. So you see here that our response to opposition is also a statement of faith. It's not just, like I said, it's not something we just um, psych our minds into doing. No, that kind of fearlessness is built through unity and prayer. And then he goes to verse 29, a verse that you might not hear often. It says, for to you it has been granted. That word there is the word my. It means to give as a favor, as a gift, as a privilege. The same way you say, oh, I've been given, I've received the privilege of ministry. What does Paul say you've, been, you've received as a gift? It says not only to be, but to suffer for his sakes. And <laughs> these are some of the harder verses that we, we can just want to read through and say, glory to God, I've received it. And you just, you just want to clear it out of your mind. But let's, let's, let's stay there for a while. Paul says, you've been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. And of course, for many people here, the suffering is not, no one is flogging you. It's not yet. No one is... Is saying I would uh, freeze your bank accounts. No one is putting you in jail. For some, it might just be hostility from co-workers. It might just be, um, I don't know, rejection on social media uh, and, or humiliation, whatever, whatever it may be. But Paul is saying that for, for, for these people, the people at Philippi, and by extension, like we even see in Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer opposition, will suffer persecution, whatever forms that might take. And here Paul says it is a privilege. It is a gift. It is a favor. (laughs) And that's the mindset. That it's a way to think about it is all you think of all God has done. Going back to um, Peter and um, John that went back rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Look at the phrasing of that text. They were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. It was a, it was like wow so I get to share in the suffering 
And you can start to see how they were thinking that, oh, Jesus did all this for him, for me rather. He died. He suffered. He was just taking on flesh alone. And how big a deal that was. And now I get to live for him. And in living for him, people are treating me the same way they treated him. People are opposing me the same way they opposed him. Wow, what a privilege. I get to stand with Christ. That was the mindset. That was the mindset. So Paul is like, oh, you guys want to stone me. Because and this is not, it's not that it was easy. Don't, don't mix it up. It's not saying that, oh, we enjoy when we're being stoned. We enjoy when we're being flogged. We enjoy losing our loved ones. No, they prayed against persecution, right? Paul said three times, I pray, take this stone in the flesh away. However, in going through it, there is a mindset where you realize that it is a privilege to identify with Christ in suffering. Is a privilege to say that Jesus died for me and I'm living for him. And whether that requires reject, whether that means I would face rejection, it's worth it. It's a gift. Whether that means I would face persecution for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, and it's actually physical, Paul says, What? You have been granted. You have been granted. That's incredible. That's incredible. Amen. Goes on, it says, having the same conflicts, referring to all the opposition and all the struggles he has faced preaching the gospel, which you saw in me. Again, we looked at that last week, right? Paul didn't exactly have it easy bringing the gospel to Philippi. And now here is in me, meaning he's currently in jail as well. So it's been from one trouble to the other. People have, persecution has constantly followed Paul everywhere. And he's saying that it is a privilege. <clears throat> We're going to see see some of that in Philippians 3, where Paul talks about how he has partaken of the sufferings of Christ. Even in Corinthians, many places, right? He says, I complete in my body the suffering that is lacking for the church. That kind of mindset, where if Jesus did all this for me, the least I can do is live for him, regardless of what it would take. Regardless of what it would take. Amen. Amen. I think a way to think about it, and of course it's not a perfect analogy because there's nothing we can do to pay Jesus back. It's like, for instance, think of someone who, I don't know, maybe gave you, 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 you were, someone is about to die, he needs an urgent liver transplant, and then someone comes along and gives him a liver. Right and or let God forbid um, um, donates his liver and maybe he dies in the process and now you are living and you know that the only reason you are alive is because someone donated his own liver and let's say he has an only child for you to take care of that child would you regard it as suffering no it's it's almost an obligation at this point that it's the least I can do the very reason I'm alive today is because someone donated his own blood his own organ for my sake and so if i have to spend money to take care of this child pour love on this child it's not a burden it's not it's, it's a privilege that i get to do this it's that kind of mindset where like jesus has done all this for me <laughs> jesus has done all this for me 
the least I can do is push this gospel regardless of the cost. So that even when opposition is coming, it's not even something that, that it, you see it as a privilege that, wow, I get to partake in the sufferings of Christ. Incredible. Incredible. So yeah, now we go to chapter 2. So I have repeated the last 30 minutes of teaching. We thank the Lord. Um, Philippians 2 verse 1. Again, Bibles were not written in chapters and verses. More often than not, it helps to read them that way, in the way they were written, not exactly with chapters and verses. This helps for like structure and organization. And if you've been following through, many times we don't end on a certain chapter. Apart from the fact that it's because for some reason I never keep the time. <laughs> but also because the flow of thoughts doesn't exactly end and begin at a chapter. So it, it helps. For instance, Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, already you know that whatever is about to say, moving on, is hinged on everything he has just said. What has he been talking about? He's talked about the unity of the church. He's talked about staying alive for their sakes. He's talked about them being united and standing firm in the face of persecution. He's talked about having a mindset that sees persecution as a privilege. Now he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, now you can see why he's using the word consolation. If there's any comfort of his love, he's just talked about suffering. If there is consolation in Christ, some other translations will say if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort in his love, and if there's any what? Fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy. So when he's saying if here, he's not saying that maybe there is, maybe there's not. No, a, a, a better way to read this is that since there is, right, since there is, there is consolation in Christ. There is comfort in his love. There is the fellowship of his spirit. There is affection and mercy. So in all I've said, there is all of this. In suffering, there is consolation. In persecution, there is comfort. In opposition, there is the fellowship of the Spirit. And so because of that, what can we do? He repeats himself again, as he's going to do it all over, um, over and over again in this in these chapters or in this book, which would make my job a lot easier. So he says, fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded. The same thing he said, one spirit, one mind. He says it again. Be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord, be of one mind. An emphasis in unity. An emphasis in unity. Verse 3. So now let's 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 get right into it. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out for his own interest, but also not for his own interest alone, rather, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus. So I'm going to get back to those three verses. I want us to read the poem he's about to recite, and then we're going to go there. So what is he saying? He's talking about a certain mindset to have in the body, the way you relate with people, a mindset of humility. And what is the example? Jesus. So whatever he's about to explain, 
that was in the mind that was in Jesus has to do with what? Humility, right? Has to do with putting the interest of others above yourself. Has to do with what? Humbling yourself. So let's read verse 6 to 11 with all of that in mind. So what was the mind that was in Jesus that we are to emulate? Verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So he starts to describe who Jesus is, or in quote, was. Is is a better way to... (laughs) But he says, being in the form, and a lot of times people let this word trip them up, that, oh, so he was just a form. He wasn't exactly God. But then you will contradict yourself if you take that that stance because of the very next verse. It says he took upon the form of a born servant. So if you say form doesn't mean he was exactly of that nature, then you're saying he was not God, but he also wasn't man. So what exactly was he? But anyways, let if I will still get to all of that. Let's let's take it one at a time. It says, who being in form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation I will read the whole thing and then we'll look at it one at a time taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name that at the mention of the name is that what your Bible says at the, at the mention of your name, <laughs> at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God, the Father. Now let's start. Remember, what is he reading this for? To highlight a certain mindset that Jesus had that we should also have to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that, right? That's how to keep track of the context. So what is this mindset of humility? What is this mindset of lowliness of mind? What is this mindset of looking out not for your own interests, but for the interests of others? He says Jesus was in the form of God, and he did not consider it robbery or stealing to be equal with God. The word form there is the word morphe. It also refers to nature, the nature of a thing. So it's not like you're saying, oh, I'm in the form of a man, but I'm not really a man. That's not what Paul is saying. Now we're going to see more reasons as we go on. So he's saying that he was divine to the point where he wasn't even, you, you are not wrong to say he was equal with the father in terms of position. So we see identity we see position. We see identity. We see position. I, I, I hope that's clear. He was in the form of God. He was divine. And even in position, it was not wrong to say he was equal with the Father. Right? But what does he now say? He says in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. That word there made himself of of no reputation or no reputation is the word i don't think there's any reason to say it in the greek but just in case keno k-e-keno whatever i don't know how to pronounce it. i don't speak greek k-e-n-o-o-o 
K-E-N-O-O. But more importantly than the grief, what does it mean? It means to make yourself empty or to neutralize. <laughs> yeah, according to the, the Strong's Dictionary, to empty yourself. And that's why some translations will say he emptied himself. And he what? How did he, what, what does emptying himself look like? He took the form of a bond servant by coming in the likeness of men. And now we're going to touch on a topic where to do a long teaching would take probably an hour or more. <laughs> but uh, what theologians would call the hypostatic union or... Um, <laughs> The, the how do you how do you reconcile the fact that God was both man or Jesus the Son was both man and God? Um, I will not use just this verse alone to teach that. I think that we're going to get to other epistles where that is more expanded on, and I will dwell on it there. But just just even looking at these verses, he says he was in the form of God. He was divine, and even in in position. He had no, like, you weren't wrong to say he is equal with God, but he emptied himself. What does emptying himself mean in this context? He took upon himself flesh. He took upon himself flesh. I remember talking to a Muslim, and one of the biggest questions you would always get asked is, explain the Trinity. I don't understand what you mean by God has a son, and the son is God, but the son is not the father, and all of that. I think the first thing I always say to that is, is God all-powerful? You say yes. Can he take on flesh? And then you pause. If he is all-powerful, why can't he take on flesh? Why does it bother you that God is so powerful enough that he can step into creation? That he can step into creation. And if he does step into creation, what would that look like? Of course, he would restrict himself to the order of creation. There were many instances where he, he was tired of this earthly vessel and he just walks on water or he just <laughs> stops the sea. But there is a sense in which with the limitations that come with the flesh, he subjected himself to it. So he was tempted, right? He was hungry. He was tired. He couldn't be everywhere at every point in time. Even in certain informations, he would say, oh, I, only the father knows when the, when, when the trump would sound and all of that. He died. He died. And so that is what Paul is referring to, that this is someone who was divine, taking on flesh emptying himself in that sense by taking on flesh so emptying himself doesn't mean and that's why the NKJV says he made himself of no reputation because if you say emptying himself you might think oh maybe he threw away his, his divinity when he took on um, humanity that's not what is happening but he took on flesh he took on flesh right his identity as God didn't necessarily change and we're going to see that right but he took on flesh He's limited, in quotes, with all the limitations that come with taking on flesh. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself to the point of death. Verse 28. What is the result? Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. 
Before you think Paul is just talking, go to Isaiah 45. Go to Isaiah 45. So this would help to put things in perspective. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 15. Sorry, let's start from verse 14. And I want you to pay attention to this. And when he hits you, I hope you would understand what Paul is trying to do. In verse 14, it says, Thus said the Lord, um, The labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the Sabians, men of stature, because it's the Old Testament, permit me, let me read for from an easier translation for the sake of people listening. Um, let me read NIV. It says, this is what the Lord says, The products of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, all these tall Sabians, they would all come to you and they'll be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other, there is no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols um, will put themselves to shame and be disgraced, but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. We've already seen messianic hints here, beautiful stuff but not in today's topic. You would never be put to shame or, or disgrace to ages everlasting, right? Now read to, let's skip to verse 21. It says, declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago from the distant past? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no God, pay attention. There is no God apart from me a righteous God and Savior, there is none but me. So we see God saying, I am one. There is none apart from me. It says, turn to me and be saved. This is something you probably even see in the New Testament. Like, is this, not, is this Old Testament I'm reading? It says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. So every nation of the world turning to the Lord will be saved. Again, not today's topic, but awesome stuff. For I am God and there is no other. Now, start reading. It says, um, sorry, give, my, give me a second. Yes. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear, <laughs> right? They would say of me, in the Lord alone is righteousness and strength. And you have raged against him. And all who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Who is speaking here? It's God. He says it that I have said that before me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Right? I am the Savior. I am God and Savior of the whole world. And everyone will acknowledge this. Now, Paul comes several hundred years later and says, God has given Jesus a name that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So in Paul's mind, it can't be any clearer. Jesus is God. Jesus is that God and Savior in Isaiah 45. Jesus is God. So for those people that would try to use this verse to say, Oh, Jesus, uh, he was form of God, form of man. He wasn't really God and all those funny things. 
this should prove to you that that is not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is simply saying, again, um, Jesus as God humbled himself, took upon flesh, and because of all he has done, he has been exalted to that position of authority and power where all of creation submits to him as God, who he is. Right? So there's, there's this kind of dissension, ascension thing, which we've talked about in, um, in Galatians. I believe we're going to talk about it. We talked about it in Hebrews. Yes, we talked about it at length in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. How Jesus as a man and in the resurrection being declared as the son of God. But the point there is clear. Jesus at no point in this whole process stopped being God. But we see him for the sake of humanity, humbling himself and taking on flesh. We see God, the Father, exalting him as a result. And I love verse 10 very much because it says, everyone will get to a point where they will confess. They will agree, right? The word that's to acknowledge that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. Again, I said what? At the name of Jesus. Not necessarily at the mention. The word name there just refers to authority and status. Usually due to a position or to an accomplishment. So if I say, I come in the name of the president. It's not that the word Joe Biden has any special meaning anywhere. But because of the office he occupies... That name carries power. That's the same thing with Jesus. There are many people in, in Spain, in Brazil, Jesus, um, Jesus, whatever, that in maybe even Israel, Yehoshua, Joshua, it's the same thing. But their names, don't at their name, no one is bowing down. At their name, no one is confessing anything, right? I have a friend called Joshua. His name doesn't do anything to me, right? But the idea there is that because of the accomplishments because of the death and resurrection god has elevated that name to a status of authority says my land oh wow can you see <laughs> your last said i love that your last name is jesus um god has exalted that name to a position of authority and status where all of creation submits to the man god See, the God-man, as we often say, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So, now, bringing it back, remember, Paul is not saying all this for the sake of it. He wants you to reflect on this story to the point where it influences the way you live in the church. So, he's letting you know that in the body, we don't become less when we serve. Our identity hasn't changed. Yes, we're all sons of God. Glory to God. Indwelt by the Spirit. However, in position, we can choose to step down for the other. We can choose to humble ourselves for the sake of other people. We can choose not to think about our own interests. Jesus didn't just say, ah, boy, it's sweet being divine. I don't want to take this, this filthy animals. <laughs> I don't want to take flesh. I don't want it. No. The same way Paul could have said, you know what? Let me die. I, I don't mind. But no, there's a mindset that Paul has seen in Jesus that he's encouraging you to have. That every decision, every action, you're not just thinking about yourself. Jesus thought about us. He took on flesh. 
Paul thought about the church. He decided to stay and live a little longer. We think about the brethren and we are able to love. We are able to serve. We are able to forgive. That's the message. That's the idea. Thumbs up if that makes sense. I haven't said that in a while. I don't think I even said it last teaching. <laughs> but is it making sense? Is there anything you want me to clarify? I'm still going to go through it. So now we're going to read again what Paul has just said. But that's the idea. That you look at Jesus. You see the humility in incarnation. You see the humility in submitting to death. Oh, I said, okay. Some you are tempting me to drag you. But I, I, I rebuke that. <laughs> I choose to humble myself. <laughs> um, he humbled himself. He took on flesh. For the he, he was thinking about others. He didn't just do it because oh, at the end of the day, I was no. He says, "You hear the prices restore me to the glory I once had since the beginning." Jesus did not have to take on flesh to be God over the world. He was already the means through which everything was created. Right? But he took on flesh for our sakes so that we can share in his exaltation, so that we can be restored. Paul, he reflects on all this and he says, wow, I can choose to die. I can choose to say, you know what? I've tried. Let me go and be with the Lord. I will see you in eternity. Peace out, guys. He said, no, people need to grow. People need to be saved. And that's what he's saying here again in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It says, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Meaning in your mind, you esteem them above yourself. They, you, 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 he, he explains more in the next verse. You care about their interests, what they need, what is beneficial for them. You are able to serve. We see a similar thought in John 13 when Jesus was about to wash the disciples' feet. The very same message. And I love the way John um, drafted that entire um, experience. In verse 3, it says, John 13, 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. You see that? That's literally what we just read. It says, so he got up. Do you see? It says he knew that the Father had put all things. So he got up, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel, and started to wash. So he knew his identity. So in humility, you're not like, ah, I'm becoming less of a man. I'm becoming less of a believer. No. Jesus knew who he was, and he was that confident in his identity as God that said, you know what? I will humble myself and serve. I would humble myself and serve. And that's the same mindset every believer should have. I know who I am in Christ. Glory to God. But as a result, there is no insecurity anymore. I'm not like, ah, Jesus is washing feet. He has become his servant. And then just like, ah, hey, I'm shy. I'm offended. No. It's the same thing in the church. We should be able to serve one another. And it doesn't, it doesn't in any way berate you. It doesn't in any way reduce who you are as a person. That's the message. That's the idea. Amen. Hope that's clear. Thumbs up, thumbs up. We're moving on. So I want to be sure, I want to be sure that's clear. All right. 
Okay, 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 okay. Perfect. So, verse 12, let's go on as we start to bring today's teaching to a close. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed... Oh, let me go back to NKJV. <laughs> Therefore, my beloved... You see? It's sweet. Which one is dear friends? Beloved. I love that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It says, As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Very common verse. Work out your own salvation. Your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, you read verse 13 and you see war. So the reason you can do whatever is happening in verse 12 is because there's something he's about to say in verse 13. Many times people will just read verse 12. Work out your... Are you working out your salvation? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it goes on. It says for. That word there literally means the reason for something. It's used to assign reason. So the reason I can work out my salvation, or there is a reason I can work out my salvation. Why? Because there is God who works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I can switch these verses and it won't spoil the meaning to say what? God works in you both to will and to do of his pleasure. Therefore, work out your salvation. Does that make sense? So he's, he, he, he lets us know, first of all, that God is doing something in you. That word there, work, is the word energio in the Greek. Very common word, especially in uh, if you go to celebration church. It means to be active. It means to be effective, to, 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 to do something, right? It's operational. It, it denotes activity. God is at work in you, both to what? To will and to do. The desire and the ability. God is the one supplying that. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26. I will take out of them a stony heart and I will put in them a heart of flesh. I will cause them to walk in my status. Jeremiah 33, the same thing, right? In that day, all will know the Lord. So that's what it's saying. I'll make a new covenant. God is at work in you, the believer, to do, to will, and to do. Therefore, work out what God is already working in. The word work out there, it simply means... <laughs> I'm not going to say the Greek. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> but it means to bring to completion. To bring or to accomplish something. So, I want you to think now, right? He's talked about um, the model of Christ. He's talked about your response to persecution, right? Think about that. Think about where we started from both today and last week. He's talked about in chapter 1 towards the end how we should be of one mind, striving together for the gospel, um, being fearless in the face of our adversaries. He's talked about living in unity, humbling yourself, not, not, not um, um, thinking about the interests of others even more than your own. And he says, God is at work in you, both to will and to do. Therefore, accomplish it therefore accomplish it so already this lets you know 
that this is not a salvation let me it's this is not saying that um you need to do something to be saved yes that's a better way of putting it it's not it's not this is not a works to equal salvation teaching the very same paul in galatians 3 verse 1 to 3 said who has bewitched you did you start in the flesh how do you think you can be made perfect in the flesh what is paul saying he's saying god is already at work in you to do all that i'm asking you to be able to be of one mind, to be able to love, to be able to bear under persecution, to be able to, to humble yourself and esteem others as better than yourself. Therefore, do what? Partner with him. Partner with him and live it out. Let's read the NLT. Tommy says, it, it, yes, it says, uh, exactly. It says, dear friends, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, you must be even more careful to do what? Put into action God's saving work in your life. It's the very same thing. God is doing something on your inside. Through Remember I started by saying that every instruction in the epistles is given because the ability to get it done is already within you. That's these two verses combined. God is already at work in you. What is our response? We work it out. We accomplish it. We, we give full proof of the fact that we are saved. So only someone who is saved can work out their salvation. So this is not a, a you may make it, you may not make it um, teaching. This is not a, you need to supplement your, on this journey you can fall away kind of thing. No, this is not even what is on Paul's mind. Paul is talking to believers that he has just given a couple of instructions on how to live in this present world. And it says, God is at work in you. So do what? Work it out. Work it out. Work it out. Work it out. Amen. So even as believers in today's world, that is where the strength to live for God comes from. It is not just something you do in your own effort. <clears throat> you first of all realize that there is already a working of God on my inside to will. The very fact that I want to pray every day, it shows that God is at work in me. The fact that I want to study my Bible, God is at work in me. That desire I have to live for God, God is at work in me. But he doesn't just stop at desire. He works in me to get it done. All I do is what? I partner with the Spirit. It's similar to what Paul talks about being about walking in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we spent a while on it. There is a Spirit of God at work in you. There is the Spirit of God at work in you. And it's your responsibility to partner and to walk in accordance. To not give in to the flesh. And that's the same thing. You Philippian church, accomplish or make full proof this work of God that is already in you, you guys are saved. I'm confident of it. Live it out. Live it out. Live it out. Amen. And so he does say your own because there is a sense in which as every believer decides to partner with the work of God in them, collectively as a body, we would see the benefits. We would see the benefits. And it says, it says what in verse 14? Still in that same line. Do all these things. 
without complaining and disputing. As you go about your life, as you are living here with harassment from the world, with even maybe people in the church have annoyed, it says, do all of this without complaining, without disputing, right? And even just to just to um, <coughs> deviate a bit, I remember the first time I read this verse, I think I was in um, 100 level or so, I'm like, ah, do everything without complaining or arguing. God, is this possible? <laughs> like the disciples, like, who then can be saved? What do you mean? Even in that very school, we're complaining about the things that were going on. When you don't have lights, you don't have data, you don't have food, <laughs> and you say, I should do everything without complaining. He said, I, I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't argue, or, or things like that. Again, it goes back. Every instruction in the Spirit can be done in the ability of the Spirit. The better context is that you guys are going through persecution. There's a lot of reason to complain. Especially when emotions are high and we are, as believers, there's tendency for people to clash. And it says, let your conduct, let all that you do as a body be without complaining, be without disputing and fighting and, and, and conflicts. And as we're going to see much more, you're going to see how Paul makes a very huge emphasis on, <clears throat> on the mind, on the things, on your, on your attitude, right? He, he talks about joy a lot. It's in this same Philippians, he says, if anything is good, if anything is, is noble, think on these things. Because it's, it's, it's so important. You can, I'm sure every one of us can testify. The days where you are just ungrateful or you're just complaining, everything seems to be negative. But if you can just look at life through the perspective of God, you will just find out that there is so many or there are so many reasons to be grateful. So it's very important as a believer, you always keep track at every point. Am I in a position of complaint and 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 um, unbelief and and doubt, or am I in a position of gratitude? It's so easy to complain. It's so easy to 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 be conscious of all the things that are not going wrong. Imagine Paul. Like this would challenge you. Someone in prison. Roman imprisonment wasn't exactly a joke. Sometimes I've seen pictures of like German or De- um, let's say. Denmark or Finland and the prison, and you're like, man, this was way better than the boarding house I went to. <laughs> Is it? Uh, no, Allah put me in prison. I cook with no mind. I'm not paying money. I have food every day. I have a bed. I have TV. Prison is not a bad idea. <laughs> that was not Paul's situation. These are people that are handcuffed in dungeons, poor air circulation. They are in their own filth, diseases, all of that. And that kind of person is telling someone else, don't complain now. <laughs> it, should, it should challenge you. Imagine how the Philippian church would have felt reading this letter, knowing that the person writing is in bonds. At least they aren't in prison yet. And he's saying, don't complain. Don't, don't fight amongst yourselves. Be joyful. Let that challenge you. So it, it goes to show that your disposition towards life has little to do with the, your, your external circumstances. 
it's about what you choose to think on it's about what you choose to meditate on and for the believer it's not just motivational speed this is not think and grow rich this is not um, seven laws of highly effective people no there are reasons why even in the face of persecution we can be joyful it's not just optimism that i just believe things will get one day one day one day no it says we have a hope we are assured right everywhere you see count it all joy you know that there is something ahead and so as a result we can rejoice now it's not just wishful thinking it's not just staring my mind to just believe someone just just be happy smile for 10 seconds and then you'll be happy no there is a reason why as believers we can go through this life without complaining we can go through this life without falling into depression we can go through this life without being um without without giving in to negativity why because our eyes are fixed on something better because our citizenship is in heaven amen so it goes on it says do all these things without complaining and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless children of god without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light in the world holding fast the word of life so that i may rejoice in the day of christ that i have not run in vain or labored in vain the same emphasis that as you work out your salvation what is the effect you shine as light in a dark world it's the very same thing jesus taught in matthew 5 right giving the beatitude he goes on to say you are the light of the world the salt of the earth a city set on hill that cannot be hid he was teaching conduct if you read the entire sermon of the mouth what was the teaching is that the way believers would conduct themselves will be so radical so different that the world would take notice that the world would take notice this is not an excuse to not preach the gospel verbally but there is a place that our conduct as believers is so radical that people are like there's something different about you and that's what he's saying you'll be children of god without fault as you work out your salvation you'll be children of god in a dark world where you shine as lights and it says holding fast again the word of life referring to the message of the gospel so that i may rejoice in the day of christ that I have not run or labored in vain. We're going to round up in verse 18. Let me just do a quick pop quiz. What does it mean to run? So what race is Paul running? Heavenly race, I don't go tired. Heavenly race. What race is that? <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. We probably I don't know if I actually can put it in the chat. What what race is this? Said that one. Which one? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one? What is this? What is this race? <laughs> 100 meters. Ah, uh, no, no guesses. Abis, am I the one that thinks is is clear? Let's hear. Let's hear. I I, I really want to hear. What does Paul mean that I have not run? Don't worry, you're not. Whatever you think it is, just put it. I I don't think you'll be wrong. <coughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, you're correct. 
don't be don't be shy the race is ministry right he says that i have not run or labored in vain all right so his race was actually referring to ministry we're going to see would would um camp there for a while when we get to um second corinthians um but yeah he says i may rejoice in the day of christ that i have not run in vain meaning my labor over you philippians was not a waste why because you guys were actually saved you lived it out you lived it out you gave full proof of the fact that indeed you didn't just hear a message that made you feel happy no it truly changed your lives and from the way you are living we can tell that indeed paul did not waste his time paul did not waste his time and then he rounds up this thought and says yes and if i am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith i am glad and i rejoice with you all so what paul is pretty much saying is that if my life is going to be spent because of this work i'm happy if 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 um if i have to die just 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 for your sakes right if my life is poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith i'm sure this by extension relates to every church he has he has um started all around asia the church in ephesus the church in thessalonica the church okay he didn't start colossi the church in galatia he says if my life is poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith i am happy about it i'm happy about it if my death was necessary just so that you will be saved it was worth it and again i i really don't want these things to fly out of our heads it's very easy when we hear teachings on persecution teachings on paul saying i'm ready to die to be kind of removed from it because we're not exactly in that position but more than anything what i want you to see is the heart of this minister of god a heart that has placed the needs of the church the needs of the unbeliever above his own the same heart that was in jesus remember it was love for sinners that drove jesus to 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 the cross it's the same way it's love for those that have not been saved love for those that 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 are saved and need to grow that 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 gave, gave paul the motivation to stay alive even if you have not you are not you are not being persecuted in that way even if you are not exactly suffering ex- um, evidently in your work for god at least let the mindset be the same let love for your fellow brethren be push you to a position where even if it would inconvenience you for their sakes you are willing to go that far even if it would inconvenience you for their sake you are willing to repeat a 30 minute teaching you have already done <laughs> oh my gosh we're going to see it in the next next week as we go to Timothy and Epaphroditus that same mindset it says Timothy I don't have anyone that sincerely cares about you like Timothy and doesn't care about himself it says Epaphroditus almost died supplying 
all that you sent through him to me. So all we're seeing in this chapter is more than just the actions. It's the mindset. It's the heart. It's the attitude that Paul is emphasizing. That same heart that Jesus had. That love for the brethren, love for the lost, will drive you to a place where you are willing to humble yourself. Meaning you make yourself, you can also empty yourself. Yes, I'm Daniel. Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, this. It doesn't matter. I'm willing to put all that aside to help my brother. I'm willing to put all that aside to serve my sister. I'm willing to put all that aside to forgive, to get along with the body. That is the mindset. So yes, you might not be persecuted. Yes, you might not, you might not, um, you might not be, no one is, is pointing a gun to your head. But we can, we can, like Paul, live for others. We can put the interests of others above ourselves. We can work out our salvation in this present world. We can shine as lights in a dark world. And it's amazing how the summary of pretty much every Christian teaching falls into those two categories. All Jesus has done and how you respond. All Jesus has done and how you respond in the world you find yourself today. So that it really doesn't matter what time of, of the year, whether you're in 200 AD, whether you're in 2022 AD, but that you are able to, just like the early church, live for the gospel. You are able to, just like the early church, maintain that same disposition Jesus had, where you are willing to serve. You are willing to put others above yourself. You're willing to share in the unity and the bond we all have in Jesus. And that brings us to the end of today's teaching. So next week, we're going to start with verse 19 um, and power through into verse chapter 3. All right. uh, Any questions before we call it a day? Any questions? All right. Awesome. I think it was a pretty clear teaching. Um, it's more practical than, um, than uh, should I say, theological. It's still deeply theological, but it's, it's, it has a lot to do with our practice. So, yeah, I leave you with that to pray, meditate, and think over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another time in your word. Thank you for um, taking the next step into the book of Philippians. Um, thank you for clarity. Thank you for the example we have in you that you laid aside your claim to to position and you humbled yourself to the Father. You took upon yourself humanity for our sakes. And I pray for every one of us here (laughs) to have that same mind, to love one another, to, to place others above ourselves, to not be selfish, not to live for ourselves alone, but to live for your people, to live for the lost that are yet to hear this gospel. I pray that we all are able to work out your salvation, to work out our salvation, because there is so much abundant power at work in us to will and to do likewise. I pray for clarity as we go through the rest of this book in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you so much, Treasure. I appreciate that. Um, thank you guys for joining. Um, <clears throat> hope it was clear. Hope you had an amazing time. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate your time. And we'll continue next week. I will not um, miss the time again. <laughs> so see you next week. Um, tell a friend. Share the podcast. I'm about to. Don't worry. I, I, I won't forget. I'm about to share it. Tell a friend. Um, share the podcast. It should be out shortly. Um, if anyone has any questions, you also should be able to give an answer that, oh, I can tell you what Paul was saying in in, um, in Philippians. So let's share our benediction again, gracefully taken upon by Ayo and Buki, and we'll call it a day. <coughs> Are you ready? All right, unmute yourselves. One, two, go. I am a diligent student and doer of the word. I am a teacher of the word. The word is profitable for my growth. By the word, by the word, and in the word, our spirit rejoices. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Awesome. Thank you all. I love you all. Um, see you next week. Bye.